Godly people are grateful people, and grateful people express their attitude. As Thanksgiving approaches, listen in as Pastor Chadwick leads us in a weekend of Thanksgiving. Psalm 116 this morning in your Bible. Psalm 116. This is one of those, excuse me, one of those difficult Sundays for the pastor who plans his preaching calendar. Um, Post-Thanksgiving, it's really the week uh, after Thanksgiving, and then um, this week, probably a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, some of you started decorating for Christmas. Anybody like that in the room? Started decorating? How many of you started like in September? Anybody in the room September? Uh, All right, there you go. Like, I just love Christmas carols. I got to start them in June. Um, That's that's awesome, and people love it. And, And then there's some of you that are like me, that you postpone the Christmas kind of season until the very last day. Like Debbie and I, our kids are out of the house. So we plan right now, uh, we're, we're kind of planning on decorating on Christmas Eve. And, uh, um, and we've got like one little thing we're going to do. And, and um, so it, it, Christmas can be challenging, uh, even for the pastor. I'm excited next week, I'll start a series um, entitled The Songs of Christmas and the story behind the Christmas carols and how they relate to the scripture and where the author got those from. I'm really excited about preaching on that series. But this Sunday is kind of like one of those one-off Sundays. And so I was really studying and praying and just kind of felt, not kind of, I felt led of the Lord to preach on the subject of gratitude again. We did it last week and I want to preach on that subject again this week. And somebody might say, well, pastor, I think you're being a little bit redundant. Well, let me assure you that gratitude and thanksgiving are repeated truths in the word of God. It's not like we looked once last week in Luke 16, and that's the only place where we would find the subject of gratitude. Matter of fact, the concept of gratitude grows and develops throughout Scripture. It's not really mentioned in the book of Genesis, uh, though it is, we could lead that into it. But by the time of the book of Leviticus, the nation of Israel had instituted a offering of thanks as part of their sacrificial and uh, system of, uh, of worship, that thanksgiving was a, was a vital and integral part of what they would do. Thanksgiving bears a prominent place in the book of Psalms both on the individual level and on the community level, spirit of thanksgiving. In the New Testament, thanksgiving is tied to the concept of the word grace. Grace and thanksgiving are inseparably linked. You can't be thankful without grace, and if you have grace, you're thankful. If God's grace has been extended to you, you're thankful for that. It's a wonderful thing. The people in the New Testament offer thanksgiving to God in worship and First Timothy and many other places in individual prayer in the book of Acts and every epistle at meals. They offer thanksgiving in the book of Matthew. Expressions of thanksgiving appear throughout Paul's writings. The 13 epistles that Paul writes, if he wrote Hebrews, the 13 epistles are, are, are filled with expressions of gratitude. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we looked at it last Sunday night, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
the New Testament thanksgiving is a response to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Why are we thankful? We're thankful because we know Christ is our savior, because Christ died on the cross of Calvary for our sin, because we have hope in eternal life. That's why we're thankful. Our gratitude doesn't come from our, our money. Our gratitude doesn't come from our, our standing. Our gratitude doesn't come from our health, though we are thankful for every one of them. Don't get me wrong. Those are all wonderful things to be thankful for. But the outgrowth of our gratitude for the believer fundamentally is, is connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work in our hearts and lives. I've got nothing to say thanks for. If you're a believer, you have everything to be thankful for. I would submit to you that the Bible repeats over and over again the need for gratitude. Repeatedly. And as a general rule, civilized people understand the necessity of gratitude, whether they're believers or not. Civilized folks are just understand the importance of gratitude. It was John F. Kennedy who said, as we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. The highest form of appreciation is not to say thanks, but to live that, though we ought to say thanks. The highest form of appreciation to the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemptive work is not simply to say thank you, Jesus, or even to sing the song. The highest form of gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ is to live for him. Doris Day, first time she'll ever be quoted at Canyon Ridge, says gratitude is riches, complaint is poverty. A woman who lived a very troubled life a life consumed with the sins of the age, understood this, gratitude is riches and complaint is poverty. The grateful person is rich, regardless of how much stuff they have. Some of y'all got your house full of stuff. You got storage bins full of stuff. You give stuff away to the Department of Veterans Affairs on a regular basis. And yet, because you have a heart and attitude of complaint, you live in continued poverty. Doesn't matter how much you have. Some of the grouchiest, impoverished people I've ever ever known have very large checking accounts. Gratitude is riches. Complaint is poverty. Henry Ward Beecher said, the unthankful heart discovers no mercies, but the thankful heart will find in every hour some heavenly blessing." The unthankful heart discovers no mercies. There's nothing good that ever happens to the unthankful heart. And by the way, you see, here's what some people say. Oh, pastor, I'm thankful. I just don't see any good. No, no, the reason you don't see any good is because you're not thankful. You have an expectation that you deserve more than God is at present giving you. So there's no gratitude in your heart. I wish my husband was taller. I wish my wife was smarter. I wish my kids were more or less or whatever. We can find a thousand reasons in the world to be unthankful. But to the thankful heart, we find tremendous mercies and blessings. G.K. Chesterton said, Chesterton said, when it comes to life, the critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them for gratitude. 
Debbie and I have said for years that the greatest marriage problem, the source of marriage problem, is unmet expectations. I expected marriage to be like this and to live up here, and marriage is way down here. And no one can, can, can fix that gap. Chesterton was right when it comes to uh, the critical thing, whether you take things, the question is whether you take things for granted or take them for gratitude. Are you grateful for your spouse? And I don't mean give the reflections, oh, oh yeah, I'm grateful. If you're grateful for them, as someone said earlier, John F. Kennedy, it will, be, it will impact the way that you treat them. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, cultivate the habit of being grateful for every good thing that comes to you and give thanks continuously. And because all things have contributed to your advancement, you should include all things in your gratitude. In everything, give thanks. In everything. Now, the background to the psalm that we're looking at today, Psalm 116, is uncertain. We're not sure when it was written. Some would say it was a part of the what's called post-exilic collection or when the children of Israel came out of exile in Babylon. Some would say it was written towards the end of Babylon, uh, of the exile in Babylon. Uh, there's a Aramaic flavor of the psalm that leads some to believe it was part of that latter date. Some, on the other hand, think it was written by Hezekiah. Uh, when King Hezekiah, when he was childless and he was facing death, though God gave him 15 extra years and he was worried about the line of David that would be extinct and in peril and he was facing some dark and lonely times. So we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written, but we know that it's part of the Bible and we know that the children of Israel sang it as a psalm. So we can understand even sometimes without the context, though I love giving context, we, we understand that the word of God is the word of God, whether we know who the human author, author is or we don't know who the, who the human author is. And we don't even know all of the background to it, but we're gonna jump into this awesome psalm and we're gonna see some amazing points about this background. So I hope you have a pen and some paper and a, and, a, and a sermon notebook ready because I think we're going to give some things that will be very helpful to you today. What we understand with certainty about this psalm is that the writer helps us to understand that the highest form of gratitude happens when we express thankfulness to God. The highest form of gratitude happens when we express thankfulness to God. Why? Well, because God's the giver of all good things. So when we express thankfulness to God, it's a wonderful blessing. Well, we ask the question, why should I be thankful? Notice verse one and verse number two. I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplication. Because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. Why should I be thankful? Number one, because God listens to our needs. God listens to our needs. He has, verse number one, I love the Lord. Why do you love the Lord? Because he hath heard my voice and my supplication. He has listened to my voice and my supplication. He has heard me. 
the, the gods of the age, of their age and our age, the gods of the heathen and the pagan are either non-existent or they're a stone god or a wood god or some far off planet somewhere and, and people will pray to them, but the stone god can't hear and the wood god can't hear and the idol can't hear whether it's covered in gold or covered in silver or made of a giant ruby or made of jade. It matters not. They cannot hear because they don't have ears to hear. But our God, verse number one, I love the Lord because he has heard me. He listens to me. He hears my need. It actually means this. He pays close attention to me. What does he pay close attention to? Verse number one, my voice and my supplication. Supplication is just a humble request for help. Humble request for mercy. I love the Lord because he heard me. God listens to our needs. He pays attention to my cry for help or my cry for mercy. Psalm chapter six, number nine, verse number nine. The Lord heard my supplication. The Lord received my prayers. Psalm 66, 19, but verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Psalm 118, verse number five, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. Jonah chapter two, verse number two, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord and he heard me out of the belly of hell. I cried, I, and thou heardest my voice. The psalmist is thankful because God listens to our needs, but he doesn't just listen. Look at verse number two, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. He doesn't just listen. He actively listens. He, let me say it again. He actively listens to our needs. There's a difference between hearing and listening. The difference between listening and actively listening. Every once in a while, I'll be in the house and I'll be doing something and Debbie will say something like this. Hey, what do you think? I'm thinking about buying this. What do you think? And I'm not listening. I'm not actively listening. I just hear her like Charlie Brown's teacher. Those of you that are young and don't know, Charlie Brown's teacher just always went wah, 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 wah. You just got to watch Charlie Brown. That's all she ever said was wah, 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 wah. And you just kind of tune her out. And so I'm not listening to Debbie. I'm not actively listening. And she'll say, hey, I think we should buy this. And I'm in doing my own thing, not listening, not actively listening, but I hear her. And you know what I do? I'm like, sure. And then I come home like three days later. Why do we have a pink elephant in the living room? Well, I asked you the other day if we should buy one, and you said, sure. And this is what I often say. I did not. She's gotten much wiser over the years, and she'll say, look me in the eye. I'm about to buy a pink elephant. Are you sure? And then I'll say, if you want it, babe, whatever makes you happy, that's all I care about. <laughs> if you attend Canyon Ridge Baptist Church regular, you know I just lied. <laughs> The word here in verse number two, I want you to pay attention to this. This is very important, I believe, is the word inclined. And that word inclined means to bend or to turn the ear toward a speaker in order to listen to them. 
to bend the ear or turn your ear towards a speaker so that you can listen to them. Have you ever maybe been talking to a child and as you're visiting with the child, you can't hear what they're saying. So you do this, you, you get on your knees and you turn your ear because the child is maybe nervous or scared or in trouble or whatever the case may be. And they're barely whispering and you turn your ear to them. That's inclining unto them. That's actively listening to them. You're getting down on their level or maybe an older person who is struggling to speak and, and they're in the, if you've had the privilege of ministering to somebody in the hospital, this would be not an uncommon thing for you. And you lean over the bed a little bit and you turn your ear towards them so that they can hear. You're, you're helping them. You're ministering to them. You're, you're, you've turned your ear to them. I was at the, uh, I was at a uh, Korean restaurant. There was a, a like a fast food Korean restaurant the other day, and the lady behind the counter had a mask on, and there was plastic in front of us, and she didn't talk very loud, and uh, mostly by culture, and. Um, she said something back to me, and I, I'm said, I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I, I cannot hear you. And she said it again. I said, there's a lot of noise in the background. I said, ma'am, I'm, I'm really not trying to be rude. I just can't hear what you're saying. I don't know if she was asking for money or for me to leave or what. I wasn't sure. And so finally, I took the plastic, and I pushed it forward, and I leaned forward a little bit, and she leaned forward. We inclined our ears one to another so that I could hear her. It's active listening. That's what the Spirit does. It's a new term that, that we use, active listening, for what my mother called pay attention. That's all my mom said. She didn't need new scientific or social words uh, by social scientists to help us understand something. Boy, you better pay attention. Here's what some of the marks of active listening. I love this because it's what the Lord's doing to us. We, we, we smile when we actively listen. We hear somebody talking and we're smiling and we're looking at them. We make eye contact with them. You're probably not actively listening if you're going. And if you are, you don't, it's not a picture that you're actively listening. Our posture indicates that we actively listen. Active listeners lean into people. If you're leaning back, it's kind of a subconscious way of telling the person in front of you that I'm really not interested in what you say. You can even be in a conversation with somebody. How many of you, many of you do this? I know you do. You can repent at the altar later for this. but Or you could just run down here right now if you feel so led. I'm teasing. But you act, when, when people are talking, you come up with something to say while they're still talking. And so in the middle of a, of, of a conversation or really a, a mental monologue, while they're speaking, you're thinking, yeah, but I've got this to say, and I want to say this, and I want to follow up with this. And I, What you're saying is I'm not actively listening to you. Active listeners lean in. They want to hear. They want to get it. Active listeners mirror. It's weird if somebody's telling you a sad story, and they're crying, and you're laughing. Active listeners are saddened and remorseful along with the person or happy and joyful along with the person who's doing the talking. They're actively engaged. Some of you, if you do this, you'll get a raise at work. Just being honest with you. You're mirroring. You're showing sympathy. 
And you're free from distraction. Active listeners don't have their phone in their hand. They're not looking at their phone. If they're talking to somebody, they turn their phone off and they set it upside down so they wouldn't see the screen if something were to pop up. That's what active listeners do. They're they're not distracted by a, a phone. They're not looking at a clock. They don't doodle on paper. They're actively listening to the person. As a matter of fact, this is, oh, this is such a huge pet peeve. The worst day in the history of the world, other than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was the invention of the smartwatch. Can I get an amen in the crowd? Good grief. I mean, you'll talk to somebody and their watch is going off with text message after text message. And here I am, I'm in front of them. And they're like, oh. I was in a meeting recently. And while I was talking to a person, they probably had 42 text messages come through. Why do you have 42 text messages to begin with? People say, I'm that important. No, no, no. Here's how you get rid of them. Don't respond. You keep responding to those micro perfumery text message and Dillard's or Dillard's even around anymore or Macy's text messages. You're getting all these text messages and, and you're distracted by them and you're not giving the person in front of you the attention that he needs. I'm just trying to illustrate this point. God is actively listening. So some of you feel real conviction about the smartwatch thing. That's probably me because I watch you in sermons going... Anyway, God has inclined his ear to us, to hear us, to listen to us. You say, oh, pastor, I, 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 I have needs that you don't know about. True, I don't know about them. I have needs that I've had for a while. Okay, I wouldn't argue with that. God knows your needs. And God wants to meet your needs. Now, we try sometimes to get super theological about this. And we say things like, well, if God is sovereign, then he already knows. So why should I pray? Or God is omniscient. He knows everything. He could meet my needs. And we try to get extremely theological on these points to simply say, I don't think I really want to pray or I don't desire to pray or I'm not going to ask. But the book of James chapter four, verse number two says you have not because you ask not or the reason you don't have what you need is because you're not asking for what you need. I'm thankful because God listens to our needs. Look at verses three and four. The sorrows of death compassed me and the pains of hell get hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then called I upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Not only does God listen to our needs, God cares about our problems. God cares about our problems. The sorrows of death compassed me. The psalmist doesn't tell us the specific circumstances he faced. And I think that's a grace of God for us. Why? Because if we knew that it was war, then we would go, oh, well, this doesn't mean anything because I'm sick. If we knew that it was sickness, we'd say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me because it's my 
family. If it was family, well, this doesn't mean anything to me because it's finite. No, no. The idea of the psalm, and I, I just am trying to, uh, I find a grace in this, that it's all-encompassing for every one of us. God cares about our problems. Maybe the psalmist had a serious illness. Maybe he did. I don't know. But whatever he had, it was bad. It was very bad. Look at verse number three. The sorrows of hell. The word sorrows here means ropes or cords. It was used to hold a prisoner in prison. It was used to control someone. The sorrows of death, the cords of death, the handcuffs of death, the chains of death. Where death here is the strangling, the breath out of him, the pain or anguish of hell, the grave or the world of the dead. He is in their chilly grip. He's overtaken by terror. He's overtaken by dread. He's literally fighting for every breath. That's what it says. The sorrows of death compassed me. The cords of death are strangling me. Here's what he's describing. A panic attack would be the modern day term. Anxiety would be a modern day term. People sometimes think think these are new concepts, like, oh, we're struggling with things that nobody's ever struggled with. No, 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 don't think that for a second. People have been struggling with these things their entire life, or, or the entirety of humanity, I should say. And the psalmist was struggling with it. We can assume with almost absolute certainty that the psalmist was some type of, of, of man of renown, well-known man, because that would be everybody else in the Psalms. So we're going to make that assumption, and we understand the culture, the writings of a lady would not be found in the song that would be sung in the temple. I could teach on that at another time, but that would be antithetical to the idea of the Psalms. And we understand that these are Psalms that are written by people of import or notoriety. And the author is saying, the cords or the ropes of, of death, the ropes of prison have come to me about, have come to me about. So we understand something when we study Hebrew writers, and that is that they don't have exclamation points to draw emphasis. But with the redundancy of words, and especially the redundancy of thought, when they, when they use a same word or concept repeatedly, they're drawing special attention to it. And he uses a couple of words to help us draw attention to where he was at. Sorrows of death compass me. The pains of hell got hold or took hold upon me. I found trouble. I found sorrow. This brother's facing it hardcore. This man is at very least under tremendous emotional stress. He's, he's challenged. 
He's barely able to breathe. The cords of death, death are, are holding on to me. They've actually compassed me or compressed me. They're tight around me. The pains of, of hell grabbed hold upon me. And I, all I could find is trouble and death. I think it's important for us to understand that God knows our weakness. God knows our humanity. God understands that we struggle. God understands the challenges that are faced. God understands the long nights of despair. God understands the worry and the dread. God understands that you cry yourself to sleep at night and you don't want anybody to know. God understands the internal conflict that is going on in the hearts of many people here today. God understands the the brokenness over sins past, the struggle over problems present, the fear over problems in the future. This is where our psalmist is at. See, here's what happens when we go through emotional problems. And though I'm not speaking on this, the text demands that we give some commentary on it. When we go through emotional struggles, what Satan wants to do is to isolate us away from everybody else, make us feel like we're the only ones that have ever went through this. Come on, am I the only one that have gone through it? Thought nobody knows the pain that I feel in this moment. Nobody's ever been here. There's never been a dungeon of depression as deep as this one. And Satan wants to isolate us away from the crowd. And in isolation, then he begins to pick us apart. That's where the psalmist is. And if you're honest, you've probably probably been there too. It was a lost job, a broken relationship, a deep wound by people who were supposed to be spiritual brothers and sisters, a sick parent, a struggling child, a health issue, That's where the psalmist is at. And he calls on God. The sorrows of death compass me. The pain of hell got hold upon me. I work for a horrible boss. I can't stand where I'm at. All I find, verse, that was just the Chadwick Street version. Verse number three, all I find is trouble and sorrow. And notice that in the midst of this, he calls on God. Then call thy upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Notice the theologically astute nature of the prayer. Deliver my soul. I say that tongue in cheek. So many times people go through problems and they're like, I don't know exactly how to pray. Here's all that a guy who wrote a chapter in the Bible that's been around for 2,750 plus years said, God, I'm being, I'm in a, I have a panic attack. I have anxiety. I'm compassed by the sorrows of death. The pains of hell have grabbed hold upon me. All I have is trouble and sorrow. Here was his big theological prayer. Deliver my soul. 
some folks in here never experienced Christian freedom or liberty or joy or peace or deliverance. And I don't mean the charismatic idea of deliverance. I mean, God delivering you, delivering you from a very real trouble and a very real problem. Some of you never experienced that because you just never say, God, deliver me. You're wiki how experts. My kids are having a problem and they're sick. How to? How to cure my kid of stupidity. Number one, take him to church. Number two, make him read. Number three, have him go skydiving without a parachute. No, I don't know what to say. It's going to be on like badpreachingclips.com. No, in, in seriousness, we're always trying to figure something out. We're always trying to figure some new way. How do I get out of this problem? How do I get out of this struggle? I got to get out of this. I got to get out of this. Hey, friends, God is going to bring you to a place at some point in your life, if you're going to live a successful Christian life, where the only place you can turn is to him. And that's why the psalmist said, God, just deliver my soul. Help me. Verse number five, we see God's character is beneficial for everyone. Deliver my soul and gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. The psalmist shared that in his suffering and distress, he calls on the name of the Lord in verse number four. And God's name represents his character or his attributes, everything that he is. Finding God to be true To his great and holy name, the psalmist testified of three things, that God is gracious, righteous, and merciful. The word gracious here is solely used to depict God. It's never used for anyone else, this word gracious. The Lord used this word when he revealed himself to Moses as one who is above all merciful and abounding in compassion. One who is merciful and above all, abounding in compassion. God is gracious. He abounds in compassion. He is righteous. He is characterized by or proceeding from God's standard of morality and justice. God's standard for morality and justice is absolutely perfect every time. We live in a world crying for justice crying for justice and they want every perceived injustice made right but justice will only truly be found as we submit to and live for the Lord himself he is a just God he is the God of all justice He's just in every way. He's always morally correct. Some people want to take the scale and they're like, well, pastor, it's out of balance and we need to make these scales right in this area and we need to have perfect justice in the world. Friends, if we had perfect justice without mercy, every one of us would be hopelessly bound for hell. 
If we had perfect justice, because justice demands a sacrifice, and if we remove the concept of mercy and biblical mercy from justice, then we are all destined for hell. That's why the psalmist says with such clarity, God, you are right, you are gracious, and he starts with that, because justice without graciousness leads to tremendous problems for everyone. God, you are gracious, you're righteous, you're morally right. You make the right decision. You say, well, if God makes the right decision, why is our world in the condition that it's in? Because people have run from God and disobey God. And living for themselves, the lust of flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, they want their own thing. And in desiring their own thing, they have to run from a God who is merciful and just. He is merciful. He shows kindness. How different is our God from the God of the heathens? They are these dead little statues that are created by men that cannot hear. And our God is a God of mercy and his mercy and his justice and his compassion is seen from the, in the entirety of scripture. In the book of Exodus, the children of Israel have been in bondage in the land of Egypt for 420 years. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and They're with the Lord is guiding them in the day with a cloud and he's guiding them at night with a fire and the cloud is keeping the the desert sun off of them and and they walk in coolness because of the provision of the Lord for 40 years and at night the desert chill is kept off them because of the fire of the Lord that keeps them warm at night. I mean, God has been so provisional for them and cared for them so deeply and so wonderfully. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's wonderful to consider how gracious and kind the Lord has been to them. Well, God's kindness is exponentially growing in that God called the leader of the nation of Israel, Moses, to come on top of the mountain and to take Joshua with him, and they would be gone for 40 days, and God would give them the Ten Commandments. While Moses is on the mountain, the children of Israel grew impatient and they soon forgot the God of Israel. And they say to Aaron, who's the de facto leader and the spirit, supposedly the spiritual leader of the land, where is Moses? I don't know where Moses is, is the response. Well, we're going to bring you a bunch of gold and we want you to build us these golden calves that we can worship like the people of the land. And Aaron says, bring me the gold. They bring him the gold and Moses and Joshua are walking down the mountain and Aaron in the meantime has has, uh, uh, forged a couple of calves and and the people are worshiping them. And on the way down the mountain, Joshua says to Moses, Moses, I hear music. I hear the music of war. And as they made their way down the mountain, they saw that it was not the music of war, but the music of of worshiping idols. And they run in and Moses says to Aaron, "What, what is this? And Aaron says, I don't know, Moses. I don't know what happened. The people gave me some gold and I melted it. And out of nowhere come these golden calves. Moses is incensed. People do die in judgment and rebellion. God gave them opportunity to repent. They wouldn't repent. They died in in the judgment of their rebellious heart. That part is painful. 
Moses takes the calves. Moses grinds them, these golden calves, grinds them into powder, takes the powder, throws it into the river, and God calls Moses to come back on top of the mountain. And as Moses stood there all alone on the mountain for the second time, the Bible says in Exodus 34, verse 5, And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him, passed before Moses and proclaimed. This is what God said about God. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. What a compassionate, gracious God we have. And his character is beneficial for everyone. Look at verse number six. And the Lord preserved the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Fourthly, this morning, I want to encourage you to be thankful for the reality that God protects those with simple childlike faith. God protects those with simple childlike faith. The word preserve means to keep from injury. Simple means simple-minded. It refers to a person who is, who is naive concerning the complexities and challenges of life that is in, in experience. They lack insight, but they're made wise by the word of God. The Lord preserves the simple. The Lord keeps from injury or harm, spiritual injury or harm, the simple-minded that come to him in simple childlike faith. I'm thankful today you don't have to pass a theology test to become a Christian. I'm thankful today that you don't have to pass a math test to become a Christian. I'm thankful that you don't have to spell all the names in the Bible in order to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that all you have to do is to come to Jesus in simple childlike faith and he promises to save you. I'm thankful that there's no prescribed words for salvation, but it's the cry of the heart. It could be, Lord Jesus, save me, or it could be, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sins. I sinned on June 12th, 1997 at such and such place. It could be whatever it is, but if it's a cry to the Lord himself, he promises to save you. I'm thankful today that all I have to do is come to God in simple childlike faith and accept it. I'm thankful that I don't have to be a MIT graduate or, or to be a scientist in order to be saved. I'm thankful that I can come with simple childlike faith and talk to my heavenly father like I did as a child to my earthly father and I know that he will hear me, I know that he will protect me and I know that he will guide me. I praise the Lord for that. I'm just saying that I'm thankful that I don't have to be some world-renowned intellect to have a relationship with Christ. I'm thankful that, that you could be a stay-at-home mom and be a valued, amazing follower of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that you could be on a submarine. God bless the submariners here. You could be in a submarine 10 feet under the ocean. I was going to say 10,000, but I don't think you go that low and there's nowhere to go that low. But 10, you could be under the ocean and, and you could be away from all mankind and you could be away from all spiritual influence and all godly influence and no internet access and no messages. And you have your Bible and your heart and you can go to God in simple childlike faith and he promises to hear you. 
I'm thankful that it's not a English religion. It's not a white religion. It's not a African religion. It's not a Middle East religion. It's not a Southeast Asian, Central Asian, Eastern Asian religion. I'm thankful today that anyone, anywhere, at any time can go to God in childlike faith and hear him. Can I hear an amen? I don't think God will listen to me. Why you believe in the lie of Satan? Why would you believe the lie of Satan? I'm grateful that he protects the simple-minded. I've got a dear cousin. She's a year younger than me. She's special needs, has probably, they say, the mental capacity of a five-year-old. Name's Amy Jo. I'm thankful that God protects Amy Jo. I'm thankful for the special needs kids in our church that will never know really the difference between right and wrong and be able to make moral decisions. I'm thankful that God protects them. I'm thankful that God protects the little children in our church that parents have lost either at birth or, or, or preterm uh, uh, in the womb or after the, after the birth. I'm thankful that God protects them. Here's what the psalmist is saying. God, I am simply thankful that you preserve the simple. You say, Pastor, why are you so excited about that? Because I'm a simple person. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 21 to 27. The Bible says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world that confound the wise and the weak things of the world that confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. I joyfully raise my hand when being called a simple believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, I can defend our faith. I can talk to you apologetically all day long. But let me tell you, that wisdom is not the wisdom of Chris Chadwick. That wisdom is not the wisdom of Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. That wisdom is the wisdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, well, you're nothing but a Bible parrot. Let me be a Bible parrot all day long. I'll fly and peck and eat sunflower seeds till the Lord takes me home. I'm happy to be a simple-minded Christian of childlike faith. The Bible says in Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You say, oh, pastor, I don't feel like I had a good education. I don't feel like everything turned out my way. I, I feel like I could have, if, if the, the lots had been passed out a little bit differently, I feel like my life would be tremendously different. I don't feel like I got everything that maybe I could have gotten The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. Pastor, I got a problem and I need real help in it. Can I tell you, I want to help you all day long and I will, but can I tell you the word of God makes wise the simple. I got to hurry. Look at verse number seven. Return into thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. God gives rest. I'm thankful he gives rest to the soul. He says, return. Return. Rest, the idea of the word rest means a place of security or a place of peace. And God says, return. The idea of rest is this is supposed to be the normative place of the believer. We're supposed to live in peace. It's a fruit of the spirit. 
We're supposed to live in rest. It's a, it's a fruit of the Lord. The Bible says he giveth his beloved rest. God loves you. He, he wants your spirit, your heart to be at rest. You physically might be tired. That's not a bad thing at all. That's actually a wonderful thing. But you, your soul can live at rest knowing that God is in control. Be at rest. And I'm thankful finally this morning in verse 8 and 9 for the, the deliverance that only God can bring. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In a threefold reminder, the psalmist encourages himself, God, you've delivered my soul from death. I'm a believer. I have eternal life. Once I accepted you, I'm saved forever. God, I thank you for that. You've delivered my soul from death. You've delivered my eyes from tears. Here's this man who, who starts out in verse number three, the sorrows of death compass me. The pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. God, I'm in a, in, I'm, I'm panicking. I have anxiety. And by the time he gets to verse number nine. You've delivered my soul from death. I've come out on the other side of that depression, that panic, that anxiety. God, you are good and you have brought me out and mine eyes from tears. I'm not weeping anymore, Lord. It's not a front. It's not a fake. I'm not putting on airs. God, you have delivered me from tears and you kept my feet from falling. Some of you in this room know what it's like to be so overwhelmed with panic, anxiety, dread, sorrow that you can't stand up. We're one all bad conversation away from here. The dark night of the phone call. Now, I have the wonderful privilege, one of the joys of my life. I've got seven great joys, and this is one of them. I get to be a, a chaplain for the San Diego Police Department. It's like number seven. Jesus is number one. Debbie is number two. My daughters are number eight. No, they're number three. I love them to death. Canyon Ridge would be number four. I just love being a pastor. And being here, I just love San Diego. I love this place with all of my heart. Every once in a while, we have to do what are called wellness calls, where you go in and check on somebody. A family member hasn't heard from somebody in a few days, and, and it's unlike their character to not hear from them or whatever the case. And, and sometimes you walk in, and they're like, oh, yeah, my cell phone broke, and I, I just, you know, I don't want to go down to Walmart to the cricket dealer and get it fixed or whatever. And you're like, okay. And so we call them, call the, the, the reporting person back, and, hey, they're fine. Their phone broke. And we'll often just let them say hi right there so they can hear their voice, and then we'll move on, and it's not, not a big deal. And, but there are times when you do a wellness check, and it doesn't go that way. When you walk in and someone's loved one has passed away. And then we have to do a brief inquiry and call some people and do some things, but there's always a notification that has to happen. You have to 
most of the time pick up the phone and call a family member unless they're nearby. And you have to give that horrible news over the phone. And in that quick of a conversation, the sorrows of death are compassing people. I, I mean, that quick. And when it happens, the wise officers will often say as they talk to the person on the phone, are you sitting down? At which point everybody knows what's coming. Because we're not going to have this conversation if they're driving. Why? Because it have grave consequence on them. And we don't want to have this conversation while they're walking because it could have grave consequences on them. And, and, and their feet would fail them and they would fall. And so we ask them to sit down and as they're seated, we want to tell them the news. Doctors, before they give bad news and pastors, before we share bad news, we'll often have people sit down because we want to make sure that they're going to be safe and they're going to be okay. And here's what the psalmist is able to say. Lord, you've kept my feet from falling. Oh God, the sorrows of life, the, the, the cords of death were compassing me about. I was being squeezed out. Life seemed like it was going to be over. The fear of dread versus the pains of hell got hold upon me. I was in trouble. I was in sorrow. Lord, my life would seem like my life was over. And he calls on the Lord to deliver him and then we get to verse number eight. You kept my soul from death. You delivered mine eyes from fear and our tears and my feet from falling. Lord, I'm gonna walk before you in the land of the living. If I could be real candid for a minute. If you live for Christ for more than a few months, you're going to experience this. There's going to be some deserts in your Christian life. One of the sad things that I feel as a pastor is I like to have fun. I'm kind of a, I'm a hype man. I want everything to be great. I enjoy life. I want to make people happy. I like to tell good jokes, but I'll tell bad ones. I mean, I, I just, I, I, I enjoy life. I enjoy living. But the reality is, is that sometimes people come to church and you're absolutely broken when you walk through the doors in here. And some people, when they come to church and they're absolutely broken and they don't walk out hyped because everything in our culture is hype. I mean, we've got fake YouTube and we've got fake Instagram and fake Twitter and everybody's going to tell you how amazing their life is, but their life's not really amazing. They go through this too. People without Jesus go through it just like people with Jesus go through it. The difference is we have a one who will carry us through and they have only one who will hold them in it. 
And sometimes people come to church and we think everything's going to be great. And I just want to be super candid with you. And I want to, I want to let you know that sometimes in your Christian walk, especially if, if you've been saved for a shorter period of time, you need to understand you're going to go through some spiritual deserts. There's going to be some difficult moments. Not every day is going to be a great day. Not every day are you going to wake up and go, man, I cannot wait to memorize Psalm 119. You're just not going to always feel that way. Some days you're going to wake up and you're not going to feel like I I want to spend time with the Lord today because I tried that yesterday in my life. Nothing changed. There's just going to be some of those dark moments in life, some of those difficult challenges in life. And you have to ask the question, why? I want to live for Christ. Why is this so hard? Randy Alcorn, one of my favorite writers, discussed this in a blog post, and he said this, mountain climbers could save time and energy if they just reached the summit in a helicopter, which is a bright idea. But their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. Sure, they want to reach the goal, but they desire to do it by testing and deepening their character, discipline, and resolve. God created scientists. God could have created scientists and mathematicians and athletes and musicians. He doesn't. He creates babies who take on those roles over a long process of time. Nobody comes out of the womb Go and doc E equals MC squared. Or let me show you a better way to stitch that thing up. Or I don't like that solution. I want this one. No, we come out babies and we grow over time. This is God's, this is in God's economy. We could be married and have an amazing marriage and never struggle, but that's not what God wants. He's using this to grow us and to discipline us and to train us and to help us. So we grow and we work and 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 we work when things aren't going great and we keep moving forward and we keep moving forward and we keep moving forward. God doesn't Make us fully Christ-like the moment we're born again. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with an open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Stay close to Christ. Let him deliver you and you'll grow more like Christ. Day after day after day after day. And we'll be thankful for the deliverance that only God can give. Every once in a while, my wife and I will remember some of those early fights that we had. They normally don't lead to new fights. We remember the grace that we've been able to show towards one another and the growth that we've been able to have. Why? Because God brought deliverance in our life. Reasons to be thankful. God knows your needs. He knows what your need is. He cares about your problems. His character is beneficial to everyone. 
He protects those who are simple. He gives rest to the soul. And there's a deliverance that can only come from God. Has your soul been delivered from God? Do you know without a doubt today that if you died, heaven would be your home? I mean, if you died tonight, are you 100% sure that you would go to heaven? If not today, the Bible says it's the day of salvation. Not the day that I came to learn some slick techniques about active listening. No, today's the day of salvation. Well, how could I be saved? No, Jesus, saved is a Bible word to mean you are lost and now you are saved. Well, you're lost because you've sinned against God. God created you, but you rejected him. And because of your rejection, the eternal price that you'll pay is eternity in hell. But you don't have to go to hell even for your personal rejection of God. You have to go to hell and spend eternity there because God can't allow anyone who rejects him into heaven. And so the only way that you can get into heaven is to acknowledge that you're a sinner The only way you can have a relationship with God is to acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you desperately need a savior and you can't do anything. You cannot work your way to heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. I'm a sinner. I can't work my way to heaven. Only Jesus can save you. If you'll admit and acknowledge that only Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he did die on a cross for your sin and that his blood washed away your sin, God promises that he'll save you. God, I've sinned against you. There's a problem between you and me. I can't save myself because I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. The only one that I can go to for salvation is Jesus Christ. If you'll go to Christ today, God promises to to save you and the choice is yours and if you're here today and you feel God drawing you to himself get saved today in just a moment we'll have counselors at the front you can pray a prayer in your chair and if you do please tell us afterwards because we want to rejoice with you and help you in your Christian walk for sure that you can come to Christ today and then believer are you grateful for the right things for the right things If not today, why don't you repent of a spirit of ingratitude like we all have to do at times and start praising the Lord for his goodness, for his care, for his rest, for his compassion, and for his deliverance. Father, bless our time. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.